This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to OK Sis Podcast. Hi, sisters. I'm Maddie. And I'm Scout. And we are sisters IRL. I'm the older one. Yes, Scout. We know. We're cultural observers. And of curious minds. Get ready for sisterly banter while we chat about fixations, learnings, and personal growth. We promise it'll be a good time. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood! Hello, my fellow bibliophiles. It is Mads, and here we are on month six of the OK Sis Book Club. That is half a year of book club. Wow. Hopefully, if you're listening to this, you have read The Heart Principle by Helen Huang, which was September's book club pick. But if you have not, do not worry, because I'm going to quickly summarize the book before getting into my conversation with Helen herself. As you may know, the OK Sis Sisterhood has joined Geneva, which is an amazing community app where we share all of our book recommendations, get updated on the latest book club pick, and share thoughts on recent reads. I will be posting some discussion questions about the heart principle for all of us to connect virtually, and they are there are so many brilliant women in there, so we'd love to have you in the community as well because you're brilliant too. The link to join can be found in the show notes and on our Instagram link in bio. Okay, September's book club pick was The Heart Principle by Helen Huang. When violinist Anna Sun accidentally achieves career success with a viral YouTube video, she finds herself incapacitated and burnt out from her attempts to replicate that moment. And when her longtime boyfriend announces he wants an open relationship because before making a final commitment, a hurt and angry Anna decides that if he wants an open relationship, then she does too. Translation, she's going to embark on a string of one night stands. The more unacceptable men, the better. That's where tattooed motorcycle riding Quan comes in. Their first attempt at a one night stand fails, as does their second and their third, because being with Quan is more than sex. He accepts Anna on an unconditional level that she herself has just started to understand. However, when tragedy strikes Anna's family, she takes on a role that she is ill-suited for until the burden of expectations threatens to destroy her. Anna and Quan have to fight for their chance at love, but to do that, they also have to fight for themselves. All right, without further ado, let's get into today's discussion on the heart principle with Helen Huang. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I devoured this book in about two sittings and just was so taken aback by its charm. So I am delighted to be speaking with you today. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Of course. Okay. So I first want to start off by asking you very candidly about the romance novel genre itself. So you are one of the top contemporary romance novelists, and I think I've been shaping basically where this genre is today. And when I fell into reading romance novels, I think some people might be a little afraid of the genre just because it's been deemed, you know, chiclet or somehow different than other genres. But to me, it has been these amazing stories of wit and beauty and, you know, tension building. There's so much more than the pretty illustrations, you know, on the cover. So I want to talk to you and see what 
excites you about about this genre and, and where it's headed? So I started reading romance when I was pretty young. I was in eighth grade. And what I what I wanted from romance at that point was I just wanted all those intense feelings. And I read so that I could feel all that longing and that feeling of falling in love and just like the physical sensations, all of that giddiness and that excitement. So that's what I was reading for at that point, because you get all of this, the most intense emotions when you're reading a romance novel. It's completely different from, you know, reading a horror or science fiction, because it's, it's so much about feelings and just experiencing. I think now that as I'm writing it, and I feel like I, there's a lot that I can contribute that I didn't see a lot of as I was reading and growing up, you know, I can add diversity I can add mental health, I can portray autism, things like that. And I can do things with a romance that I I hadn't seen done before. And that really excites me that I get to try new things. That's so true. You have added so many different life elements to to the romance novel genre. You mentioned autism and I was so warmed by your note at the end, the author's note at the end of the book, because you explained that Anna is most like you than any other character that you've written. And it's why the book is in first person. Just for those listening, we uncover in the book that Anna is on the autism spectrum and then she suddenly understands herself so much better with this diagnosis rather than, you know, her sister who kind of dismisses it as this negative attribute. And it's just so beautiful to see her connect with Quan about this and then his persistence that, it you know, if it feels right to her, then that's all that matters. And you obviously bring up autism in, in many of your other books as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this choice to have Anna really embody this part of herself and kind of come to terms with it. So when I wrote The Kiss Quotient and The Bride Test, that was early on in my personal autism journey because I'd been newly diagnosed at, you know, right when I was starting to write The Kiss Quotient. And the experience of being diagnosed, how it would affect my life, how it would affect relationships, all of that was still happening and unfolding at that point. And so I didn't know how to write it. And I remember that I just made them already autistic. I, they already knew that this was part of their lives because I didn't, I didn't know how to write a newly diagnosed person because I was, it was still happening for me. And so by the time it came to writing this book, The Heart Principle, I'd gone through all this life and I'd experienced all these new things and what it's really like to come out with this new diagnosis. And I remember when I first shared it with my family, they're like, oh yeah, okay, fine. And I thought, that's great. This, they're so accepting of me. But then seeing how words can differ from actions was disappointing. And just how big a change it was, it really impacted things more than I thought it would. And that was something that I wanted to share in the book so that other people, I, I've had lots of readers contact me and say that they identify with the character so much that they're pursuing diagnosis of their own. And I wanted to show what happened to me and hopefully help family members navigate this better than my 
experience. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned this in the book, it's a, it's a spectrum. And I think there are maybe some connotations or expectations of what, of what this means for someone. But I really loved that Quan was like, okay, well, what aspects do you identify with? And if it, if identifies with you, then that's great. You don't need to take every aspect. You can kind of just feel that entirely. And it was just so beautiful to see her get support in that way, just because yes, she wasn't finding it obviously from her sister and her mom at the end definitely comes to terms with it. But there's just this beauty and in him not even judging her, not anything. And it might be because his brother also has this condition and he has a lot of more empathy for it. It was really beautiful to just to just read that moment. Was that based on something that you've experienced too with a partner or no? Or is that something that you... Yeah. Yeah. My husband has been really great through all of this. And I feel like I wanted to share that part because it was so important to me that I had somebody there who was really trying to understand. And I remember when I shared the diagnosis with him, unlike my family members, he wanted to see what we could do to make our life better for me and to make things work for our family. And, you know, instead of just kind of saying, okay, well, you have this diagnosis and I don't believe it. So let's just keep everything the same. Instead, he was interested in working with me to keep me healthy, which I thought that's the whole goal, isn't it? Yeah. To be in that type of partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to touch on one other part, a big theme in the book that I noticed. Well, the story starts off, first of all, with, you know, we're following Anna's viral success <laughs> moment. And the book touches a lot on achieving success in like a very short amount of time and the pressures that come with that. And there's even this quote that says, I don't know if it's better never to be successful at all or to have success for a short while only to lose it. And you know, in today's society, obviously, where I think a lot of us are very obsessed with chasing that like 15 minutes of fame. And as we see with Anna, it completely derails her and it leaves her, you know, creatively depleted. Why was this something that was really important for you to touch upon and and an experience that she had to go through? I felt like I was experiencing that. Yeah. That's true. My first book did way better than I thought. I think it surprised my publisher, even they didn't have any clue. And just trying to replicate that or to stay relevant. I didn't, I didn't want to disappoint people. And I want to be, I still want to be special. (laughs) And and so it's, it was, it's really hard to kind of grapple with those desires as you're continuing to be a creative person, knowing that your work is earning you acceptance and love and all the things that you want, but at the same time, it's art and it can't come from that place. I think it needs to be something that's genuine that comes from your heart. And how do you balance those very conflicting desires when you're making something? Yeah. So how have you in your, in your journey as an author kind of been able to not really like suppress the pressures, but, you know, navigate through them so that you can produce such amazing. I mean, look, your heart principle lives up to the hype. Don't like, (laughs) I I want to give you praise. So it's just, you know, how do you do that just on a personal level, get through that, that type of pressure? Well, as I wrote the heart principle, it was hard. I had panic attacks while I was writing. 
there were days when I would have multiple panic attacks while I was writing and I'd have to quit writing. And I had like this coloring book that people gave me. There was like full of swear words and I'd be like coloring the swear <laughs> words. And, you know, I had all these other things that I would do to try to just like calm down and clear my mind and just to get back to the story that I was trying to tell. And it was a battle. It was really hard for me. And I think it's important to be off social media. I think that really helped because seeing, you know, all the new hot books out there that aren't mine is sometimes a bit hard. I want to celebrate all the wonderful authors out there, uh, the wonderful books. But at the same time, when you've been the wonderful author and then you're suddenly not anymore, that's that's kind of like, oh, I'm not loved anymore. That was hard. Just getting off social media and grounding myself with people who know me as a person and who love me and they don't love me because of my work. It's not something I have to earn from my husband or my sister, my friends. And that was really important to just to really embrace real relationships and to stay off social media and not look at what everybody else is doing. And so I think that's so bad for us, just all of this comparing and seeing success that you can't reach sometimes is hard. One of the most surprising side effects of postpartum for me was that my hair started shedding right around the crown of my head. Now I have these random baby hairs sticking out near my forehead that I just can't figure out what to do with. Yeah, I keep asking you to tame those down, but they seem to be very stubborn. Yes, I know, Mads. After a few months of me not seeing improved hair growth, I knew I needed to give my hair some extra strength and support. Enter Nutrafol. I just got the Nutrafol's postpartum supplement, and I'm so excited because I'm committed to supporting my hair health now that I'm postpartum. The next six months is going to be me and Nutrafol. I might not be a mother like Scoutala is, but as you sisters know, we are always on a hair journey here on OK Sister Podcast. I am always looking for a way to up my hair health game. I love Nutrafol because they have a whole body approach, multi-targets, underlying root causes like stress, hormone fluctuations, and nutrient gaps for visibly thicker and stronger hair. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol women's hair growth supplements for six months. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code OKSIS. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code OKSIS. That's Nutrafol.com promo code OKSIS. Sisters, my goal these days is to always look put together when I leave the house. Nothing over the top or super dressed up or anything like that. I just want to look put together and feel good about what I'm wearing in an effortless yet refined way. 
when I look at my closet every single morning and think about what I can wear that is chic and intentional, I usually end up grabbing one of my Jenny Kane sweaters and I always end up loving the way I look and the way I feel in them. You all know, sisters, that when I envision my highest self, I am wearing Jenny Kane. Their sweaters are the quintessential must-have item. I cannot stop wearing my Marina set. I throw it on and immediately feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie. Like I could just walk on the beach in Santa Barbara. It is the coastal grandma aesthetic. My favorite Jenny Kane sweater right now is their everyday sweater in taupe. This is the definition of a staple that every woman must have in their wardrobe. Sisters, trust me on this one. I wear it with leggings, oversized jeans and a little kitten heel or a silk maxi skirt. Legit, Mads and I are so obsessed with wearing our Johnny Kane sweaters that we've literally shown up both wearing the same sweater once. The white alpaca cocoon crew neck, which is this deliciously oversized sweater. Yeah, that moment takes the cake. Both of us walking in with our matching Jenny Kane sweaters. We're obsessed. Can't take them off. Wearing them every day. The type of staples that save your outfit. That is what I love about their entire collection. It is truly the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless designs. You can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. Find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code OKSIS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code OKSIS. O-K-A-Y-S-I-S. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Yes, I, <laughs> I resonate with this completely. The comparison trap of, of social media is completely toxic. And I think it's about, you know, one, we talk a lot about this on OKSIS is just you know, engineering your newsfeed. You can follow, unfollow as many people as you would like. It's not going to hurt their feelings. Like just protect your energy and your, you know, your sanity for sure. Anna goes into therapy at the beginning of the book and throughout it kind of was resisted or it's something that she didn't grow up with in her culture that was an accepted practice. Talk to me about, you know, your experience with therapy and uh, in relation to kind of your family and growing up as well. Is Was that influenced by it or where did that come from? Yeah, therapy, mental illness, things like that are not recognized at all in my family. And my dad is also uh, late diagnosed on the autism spectrum, which we didn't find out until, you know, in the last decade. And it was, he was difficult person to be around a lot of times. And it was, it was really looked down on by my family because, you know, you'd have to walk on eggshells around him and he would have these meltdowns and, and there just wasn't any understanding given to that. And everyone just called him crazy, uh, which very bad word to use. Um, There wasn't any acceptance of what kind of troubles people could have. And that it was never suggested that he he seek therapy. He was supposed to do better. There wasn't, you didn't give him any benefit of the doubt, you know, it's, it's just, he's bad. That's what he is. And so he needs to try harder. And so I always felt like I have to try really hard and just to be better than my dad. And when I finally did go to therapy, it was kind of hard because, you know, I felt like all of the stuff I was talking about, I should have been telling to my family because they would have wanted that, except that I knew that they didn't understand. So they weren't a safe place. 
to talk about those things. Yeah, just learning to talk to a therapist, learning to trust them, learning not to try to win their approval. Who's isn't that silly though? You go to therapy and you try to like make your therapist like you. I know. I love, I loved when Anna was like that because it's, it is so true. You don't want your therapist to judge you or like shame you, you know, cause you're kind of, you know, you're saying problems that sometimes feel like either champagne problems or, or minuscule, but it's, they're obviously buried within some sort of subconscious thing in childhood. That's what I've learned with therapy. It's like all something that's been in, in childhood. And it's just so funny because we do try to get them on our good side a little bit. It's, it's strange how we do that. Yeah. So it, it's been a, a journey. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so you touch on something that I don't think I have ever read before, which is caregiver burnout. And it's something that you say, again, in the author's note that you had to deal with your mom and in the book, Anna's dad falls ill. And instead of letting him pass, which, you know, was against his wishes, the family decides to take more extensive care of him at home and it becomes, you know, completely taxing. And we see it uh, weigh on Anna, especially with autism and how some people are just not made out for caregiving and that's you know that's okay for me I watched my dad as he was the caregiver for his girlfriend of over 10 years and she passed because of cancer and then he was a caregiver for his mom my grandma for a little bit and I think back to that time because when when you touched on that in the author's note I was like wow this this really was something that my dad went through that I never really even asked him about he always put on a brave and upbeat face because that's just who he was but I knew it was extremely extremely difficult for him and again it's not something people talk about because you don't want to come off as like complaining or you know ungrateful for the experience and you want to be there to help but it's like even when Anna said I can't do this for years like what if he stays alive for years and it's done you feel this shame of oh my god I don't you know do I'm am I wishing him dead or whatever it is so talk to me about why that was so important to include in this book because it was just something I had never seen touch upon and it was really brave of that to come through so my grandma had a stroke more than a decade ago and it was exactly like with Anna's dad where she was paralyzed and she she but unlike him she vocalized that she did not want to live she said it clearly and she said it often and we gave her a feeding tube and she lived in her bed for three years and we had to take care of her around the clock for three years. And I remember so much that, that there was so much I couldn't say because it wasn't okay. And, and it hurt so bad to be doing this. And when, especially when I knew she didn't want it, it was just so hard. And when she finally passed away, I felt, you know, all of this, 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 this like horrible relief I hate it. I was, why am I so bad that I'm relieved, you know? And then when my mom got sick more recently, it was like the same thing all over again that I had to go and I had to take care of her. And again, I was dealing with all this emotion that, and, and words that I couldn't say because it wasn't okay to, to feel the way I did. And when I did try to talk about it and to say, you know, this is this is hurting me because my mental health is not handling this. It's this is, you know, I've just, I was falling apart. And when I tried to talk about it, I was judged very badly. And so I wanted to use the book and to kind of 
draw upon like these themes of people pleasing and staying genuine to yourself and fighting for your mental health and use that to kind of put this out there so people could say, okay, there are things in your life that you're going to have to do because there's no one else. But at the same time, I think there needs to be an acknowledgement of the cost to caregivers, to people who are doing these things, because it's a real problem, especially, you know, as you, as we've seen during this pandemic with the caregivers, the nurses and doctors in the hospitals who are overwhelmed by the patients in those severe conditions. And I just wanted to like kind of speak up for all the people who couldn't do it themselves because I already have people disliking me. So more can dislike me. Go ahead. Um, I can talk for those people and they won't get hated. I'll just take it all. Well, you're not going to get hated. I think it's definitely something that people feel for sure. And it is something that is uncovered and is kind of just swept under the rug because of the situation at hand. So I personally thought it was brave to come out with that. And and it was interesting because there was so much tension between Anna and her sister and her sister was just kind of being like, well, this is, you know, she had the big job in New York and she, you know, she had so much, not so much more to abandon, but it just, it kind of felt that way. Like, oh, she's going to give up all this no matter what for this situation. But it is true that it takes an intense toll and, and, and at what cost? Yeah. What cost can you kind of say, you know what, now, now we're, it's, it's done. It's enough. And you did a, such a beautiful job at, at portraying that. And I felt like I was feeling the the discomfort that, that Anna was for sure. I just hope that maybe if there can be better planning for end of life care, people can make more compassionate choices that, that take into account everybody. Uh, I think that's important. Absolutely. I really like that to be done. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to make a hard pivot because we have to talk about the sex scenes. You are just very gifted at (laughs) writing sex scenes uh, specifically. So just going to give you that praise. They are incredible. One thing I did want to touch on that, again, I have never experienced in a romance novel to this day, and I've read a lot of them, is the uh, communication of how a woman pleasures herself and the kind of like shame or, you know, judgment that women feel in terms of being able to orgasm in like a weird and specific and strange way. And if they tell their partner that, then they feel like the partner will judge them or fear of, you know, not accepting them or whatever the case is. And I think a lot, a lot of women, again, feel this way, but don't say this. I know a lot of women can't orgasm from penetrative sex. So then they just end up, you know, not really vocalizing and they don't think that they're, they think there's something wrong with them and they end up not vocalizing what they need. And this was just such a refreshing outlook on how, you know, patient Quan was being with her and then also just her really taking the time she needed to open up about that. And obviously her autism did play a part in that and really and really being able to be comfortable. But I think honestly, a lot of women feel that where it is, you know, we 
we orgasm in very strange ways and it has to be a very specific, like, you know, your hand has to be here, whatever, you know, and it's, and it's very, it is so interesting <laughs> that people don't talk about this. So where did this come from and why was it, why, again, why was it so important to put that in there? I remember when I was reading romance, you know, in eighth grade and one, I didn't know what a clitoris was. They never used the word. They have like 20 different euphemisms or different ways to describe it. And when I was reading these love scenes, which, you know, I loved love scenes, and it would be the man enters and then she orgasms. And so I didn't even know that, you know, there is such a thing as, you know, other things that you need to do. And and that if you don't, you know, enjoy just the act of being penetrated, then I thought that maybe there's something wrong. Maybe, I don't know. And just like learning what, you know, sex is and how to enjoy it. And I feel like there's so much shame built in a society where we have so much trouble talking about sex. Like I didn't know what a clitoris was because no one would even use the word. And which is, you know, the bride test, he doesn't know what a clitoris is. I was like, that's me. I didn't know what it was. I had to learn the word from my brother when I was in college because I don't remember what they were talking about. And he's like, the clitoris, whatever. And I said, what's that? Learning from my brother. It was so embarrassing. And I remember he's like, yeah, he's like, oh, what? No, I don't. What? What is it? I've never heard of this thing. I read romance novels all the time. I should know this. I get so frustrated, especially someone who reads and writes and loves romance novels. I, for the longest time, I felt like books with sex weren't okay. And that, you know, they call it smut and all this stuff. And it kind of made sex this bad thing. And it made, especially, you know, women seeking pleasure, this bad thing. And and I hate that. I should really be, why, why is it bad? Why is it shameful? I've like, I think like something 98% of people enjoy sex or there's some super high statistic and, and total respect to the people who don't like it. That's fair. But with so many people who actually enjoy this in their life, why are we ashamed of it? It's the natural part of being a human. And I don't think it needs to be hidden away. And I don't think we need to be afraid of talking about it or reading about it. Or I want to to just shine light on it and to just make it totally okay to to have sex, to like sex, to read sex. I love it. I mean, it is, it's really refreshing. And I think what a lot of romance novels, at least in today's age, I feel like there are these more nuanced layers to what sex could look like or what it means. And then also this sole focus on the female and kind of like making sure there's consent and there's making sure that they're safe and there's making sure that she is comfortable. And that's something that I don't feel like other even genres do very well to to come across. And thank you for making sure that there, there's that nuance in it because it is so nuanced and so specific to each person. And that's that's OK. And it's it was so amazing to read that because I was just like, wow damn, like that's kind of like how I feel sometimes too. So it's, it was really um, relatable for sure. So thank you. Yeah. I hate the idea that like, you know, and I did experience this early on where I 
wasn't enjoying sex because I was afraid to talk about it and to communicate when yeah. it's so easy to do. Once you talk about it, then you solve the problem. And it's actually, you know, a very simple exchange, few words you say, and, right. and it's so easy to just fix the problem. <laughs> but instead, I suffered for so long. Well, if suffering is the right word. But I mean, you know, it, it, it's just sad Absolutely. to live your life that way. We shouldn't. Nope. Nobody nope, should. I agree. All right. So we're going to get into some rapid fire. I always say these are rapid fire, but they end up like taking more time than the interview itself. Um, <laughs> number one is what does literary success look like to you? I know you mentioned in the beginning, you know, especially with the parallels of Anna and her viral success, you know, you've you've kind of like reached that quote unquote pinnacle that authors, I think, want to achieve. But maybe you know, maybe that's not necessarily what you've envisioned what literary success means. What, is, what does it mean to you? I think, you know, of course I want to be on bestseller lists and all that stuff because, I mean, come on, we're, all of us are achievement focused. We want to win the awards. Um, we want to be on the lists. We want to be number one. I think that's human nature. But beyond all that, I think I would love to have a shelf of books that I had written, like Jane Ann Krentz. I, she probably fills like three or four or five shelves all by herself. I would be so proud to have shelves filled with my books. And really, I, I want to write my best work. I know that my first book was really successful, but now looking back when I read it, I think, wow, I could, I could have done better on certain parts, you know? And I, I want to continue to write books that I'm proud of and not cave and write, you know, what people want, because I don't want to be that kind of person. It's not healthy for me anyway. You know, some people, it's their job and they, they just want to make money and that's perfectly fair. Uh, I respect that, but that that's not the kind of author that I, yeah, I need to be I a different that. kind of author than that. I love that. Okay. Next question is what's your favorite underappreciated book, either something that you've re read recently it could be romance novel or not, something that you feel like should have gotten more attention, if you will. Well, I have one right here. I just read this. It's called um, With You Forever by Chloe Lease. I just finished it yesterday. <laughs> She's another artistic author, and it's just written with so much love and care. And it's a self-published book, so naturally they, it, they don't receive as much recognition as traditionally published books. And so I would just love for more people to go out and buy her books. This one particularly, because I, I really loved it. It features a hero who's on the autism spectrum and a heroine who has inflammatory bowel disease, oh. I guess. It's, so it's like chronic illness. So, which is, you would be really uncomfortable saying that because, you know, right. it's bathroom stuff and but she deals with like chronic illness and pain. And, and I think it's important to like take the shame away from that too. You know, it's just a really sweet book that I, I did really love. Okay. Adding it to the list. We love it. Okay. This one I really like to ask authors, how do you select names for the characters? Do you kind of have like a baby name book that you look through or, or what's the process? I, I do look on those, like those baby name websites. 
And a lot of times I'll just like cycle through names that I like or else currently there's a, a heroine that I'm writing and I, I have been able to find the right name for her. I was thinking like something that sounds really awful, like, like Mildred or something. I, I want her to be someone with this ugly name who's, you know, not, uh, who's like secretly that diamond in the rough, you know? And so you give them this really horrible name and then they they surprise you at every turn. I haven't quite found the right name for her yet. Oh, I can imagine that. Have you ever written a whole book and then had to change the name after or something? Or I haven't, but I know of author friends who have. Uh, I, there was one who had to change the name because her publisher thought oh that God. the name wasn't likable <laughs> enough. Um, she had to go completely oh change the name. And it, it does kind of change your perception of the character a little bit when their name is changed. And I thought that was really interesting. Absolutely. Okay. What did you edit out of The Heart Principle? Well, I had a lot of really porny love scenes oh, that I had to, what? <laughs> I had to, Condense I had them. to uh, adjust them. Yeah. Well, I think when I wrote the first draft, uh, it was kind of like just the straight stream of consciousness. Uh, I just tried really hard to just get it out of me uh, so then I could edit it slowly after. And in that first vomit draft, uh, I just had all these basically pornography. It was pornography. And I really wanted afterwards, after I looked at the love scenes, I was like, wow, this is porn. And I wanted to, I wanted to make the sex matter. Which, which isn't, you know, it's fine if you read a romance and like the love scenes are there just to be steamy and fun to read. That's fine. But I, I really wanted them to be a part, like a central part of this character arc for Anna. And to do that, it, they needed more nuance than pure pornography. <laughs> and so I had to go through and do This that. is our uh, petition to have you release <laughs> the pornographic version of The Heart Principle. We will all buy it. <laughs> Just letting you know. That's so funny. Okay, so what was the hardest scene to write, do you think? So I guess there would be two. The one, well, three, the beginning I rewrote the beginning like ugh, more than a hundred times because I, I just couldn't get it right. I was trapped. I was just like Anna in the book. Just like her. That's funny. I was trapped in the beginning. I couldn't get past it. And I kept starting over. I would delete it and start over and write and then delete it and start over. And it was this obsessive, compulsive thing. I couldn't get out of it for the longest time. I went on medication, antidepressants and anti-anxiety pills and all this stuff. So I could try to get out of it. But even like the pills did not solve that problem. I, I continued to be stuck in there until like I gave myself a break and I made the conscious choice that, you know what, this book isn't going to be perfect. No matter what I do, it's not going to be perfect. And I just need to come to terms with that and just say, you know, at a point, it's as good as I can do, and I'm going to move on. And so that beginning was hard. And there was a part when her dad tells her that he doesn't want her to keep taking care of him. That part was really hard. I like spiraled into depression afterwards after writing that. Oh, you cry your eyes out. Cried my eyes out as I wrote it. I can imagine. Um, and then I, it was like two really hard weeks before I could like continue writing. And then there's like the the climax of the book where she confronts her sister at the party. That that was really hard too. So three scenes, really hard. Ooh. 
yeah, that scene was really difficult because there really wasn't a resolution or the resolution you wanted, right? Like you wanted them to mend and come together, but really what the resolution was was, okay, we're just not going to agree on this one as or not even one aspect, but very foundational beliefs and all these things. And it was really difficult to to read, especially as, you know, I do this podcast with my sister and seeing how much our relationship has deepened. It just it pains me sometimes when sisters can't, you know, there is a level and we talk about this a lot where sisters, you could be just brutally honest and you there's like no bullshit. And that's beautiful. And that's a really, really unique relationship. But then there gets to a point where it really you need to have empathy for the other person and actually understand what they're going through instead of just completely dismissing them. And I feel like that's that's kind of what happened at the end there. Yeah, I wanted to show that, you know, there's tough love, which I think it's really big in the Asian community specifically, where you, you're going to tell them all the hard truths because you want to prepare your loved ones for reality. But I also think sometimes I think when you love somebody, I would hope that you could treat them with compassion. (laughs) And sometimes that's missing. And I think it's important to love somebody in a way where you don't want to hurt them. And so there's a difference between tough love and hurting someone. And I would hope that in relationships that you would try to treasure the people around you. Yeah, that makes total sense. All right. Well, I want to be mindful of your time. You mentioned that you were writing another character. So I'm assuming that's another book. So what is what is next for you? What can you give us? I don't want to say too much because it's still in really early phases. But if I had to pick something comparable, uh, it's closest to the film Lars and the Real Girl. If you've seen it, Mm. it stars um, the super cutie from La La Land. Oh, Ryan Gosling. Yes, Ryan Gosling. And in the the film, (laughs) he buys a blow up doll to be his girlfriend. And he kind of like walks her over. He takes her out on dates and he she goes in his car with him and he has like this whole imaginary relationship with this blow-up doll. <laughs> and, and so oh it's really God. quirky and and just, you know, you want to laugh, but you kind of feel bad for him too and all this stuff. And and so I the heroine in my next novel will be having a similar imaginary relationship and be fun to uh turn this into a romance that works (laughs) oh my god that is going to be that is going to be amazing well we are so excited and so grateful for you and all the books that you produce I mean it's just it's been such a delight reading them and I know that everyone listening as always loved every one of your books so thank you so much for doing this and chatting with me and tell everyone where they can follow you where they can buy everything all the things I'm on Instagram that's probably where I am most of the time H Huang writes or just like Google Helen Wong and, and all the contacts are at my website. You'll show up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> books available. Amazing. Books available everywhere but Target because they don't like me. And <laughs> I feel like there's a story there. Not much of a story. They just don't <laughs> like me. That's so strange. But yeah, everybody can okay. like dislike Target a little bit. Okay. <laughs> 
so funny. All right. Well, thank you so, so, so much for this. This was incredible. I've had a great time talking to you. So thank you very much. Of course. All right. We'll be looking forward to the next book and have a great, have a great week. You too. Good weekend. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.